You're listening to At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Jay Barry, co-head of U.S. Rate Strategy and chief U.S. government bond strategist at J.P. Morgan, and I wish all of our listeners a happy new year. Um, The Fed's balance sheet normalization plan, known colloquially as QT, has been running in the background for about 19 months right now. And it's been relatively uneventful, with the balance sheet decline totaling about $1.3 trillion from its peak in early 2022. Even with this drawdown, the balance sheet has returned to a size last seen in the spring of 2021, and it's still about $3.5 trillion larger than it was prior to the onset of the pandemic in early 2020. Um, just a couple of months ago, we made the case that QT could continue apace through this year, given that Strongly positive T-bill issuance would allow for a continued RRP drain, while bank reserves would also fall but remain comfortably in ample territory. However, the, the minutes of the December FOMC meeting, which were out earlier this week, shed some light on the Fed's thinking on QT. Um, they said that balance sheet runoff had proceeded smoothly thus far, but several participants suggested it would be appropriate to begin to discuss the technical factors that would guide a decision to slow the pace of runoff. Now, in the Fed's lexicon, several implies just a minority of Fed participants, but it's notable that there was no alternative plan of action offered. Um, We suspect that this means we could see a fuller discussion of potential balance sheet plans in the minutes of the next meeting, which takes place later this month. And this is something that our economics team talked about earlier this week as well. Um, Given this nascent discussion, there's a significant risk that QT slows and ends earlier than we have forecast. Um, and we note that consensus expectations um, were somewhat later than this as well, as the survey of primary dealers and the survey of market participants taken prior to the December Fed meeting indicated dealers thought QT would end in the fourth quarter of this year, while buy-side market participants expected QT to run through 2Q of 25. So this is clearly somewhat of a dovish surprise compared to our baseline and the market's baseline as well. Given this backdrop, we thought it'd be useful to explore the implications of an earlier end to QT. And today I'm joined by three terrific partners. We've got Nick Masunas, head of agency MBS research, Srini Ramaswamy, who's my partner, co-head of U.S. rate strategy and head of derivative strategy at J.P. Morgan. And finally, Teresa Ho, who runs our short-term fixed income strategy effort. Everyone, welcome and thanks for joining. Now, I'd like to kick off with Teresa here to set the stage. Teresa, Um, It's unusual that we sort of got this discussion on QT this early. Um, Granted, the Fed did say that they want to be able to communicate this to the markets well in advance. But do you think this had anything to do with what we've observed in money markets recently? Um, Because the December Fed meeting came just about 10 days after the first blip we saw in SOFR. And since then, over the year end and early part of this year, SOFR actually traded up to 540, which is about eight basis points above where it's been averaging. Um, Is this an early sign that reserves are becoming less ample and that this is the reason why the Fed took up this discussion right now? Thanks, Jay. Um, That's a really good question and one that I have been feeling a lot this week. You know, given all the scrutiny around reserve scarcity, it's easy to interpret the spike we saw in SOFR in early December as well as this past year and as having to do with reserves becoming less ample. But when we dig down into the details, the moves in SOFR were really a reflection of typical lending dynamics around year-end. That is, dealers optimizing their balance sheets at year-end for regulatory purposes. Once year-end has passed, 
those dynamics tend to reverse themselves and SOFR falls back down to more normal levels. Um, to that end, SOFR printed at 532 as of yesterday and on higher volumes, which demonstrates to us that indeed this is not a reserve scarcity story. It's not a sign that reserves are becoming less ample, um, but that the spike in SOFR was something more specific to year end. That being said, for some of us that has been in the market long enough and we're there in September 2019, when repo rates went up as high as 10%, I'm not surprised that the Fed wants to take a more cautious approach given just the lack of clarity around what is considered abundant reserves versus ample reserves. At this point, I don't think anyone really has a strong conviction in terms of where the lowest comfortable level of reserves is. To that end, I think it's just uh, a prudent action on the Fed to basically start the discussion to end the QT early. Perfect, Teresa. That makes sense. I think give it a long enough runway so the markets understand where the Fed's coming from. And if we if we take a step back, we don't expect an imminent announcement in January. Um, as Mike Ferroli had said earlier this week, um, it seems like we'll probably learn more of these potential plans from the January minutes, which won't be out until the middle of February. Um, and furthermore, the fact that there was only um, several members that talked about this, it's obvious that this is not fully formulated. Nevertheless, um, I do think it's important that we think about how the timeline for QT's end could unfold this year. And now, while history may not repeat itself, it does rhyme. And we can use the Fed's game plan from 2019, the only other instance in which it slowed and stopped QT. Um, just for some backdrop here for our listeners, um, it's a very similar timeline versus what we saw five years ago. At the January 19 FOMC meeting, the board staff presented a number of options for slowing and stopping QT, and almost all the participants at that time agreed that they would soon announce a plan, and indeed that plan was announced at the March 19 FOMC meeting for implementation in the May meeting. Um, at the time, the Fed agreed that QT would be tapered off to finish at the end of September, and that was the initial plan. Ultimately, the Fed would speed up this plan and finish QT by the end of July 2019, and that was because the Fed began to lower rates. And while there may be some parallels to draw here, because we do expect the Fed to begin lowering rates in the June meeting of 2024, last time was somewhat different because the funds rate only got up to neutral and the Fed was already back in accommodative territory. But nevertheless, I think if we use this as a baseline, it seems reasonable to expect that the board staff will present a plan in a few weeks' time and that the minutes of the coming meeting will be really instructive in this regard. And if form holds, we would expect a formal taper announcement at the March Fed meeting for implementation in May with QT to be done by September. If the Fed replicates this 2019 plan, we think, I think for all of our listeners, and this is important, this would result in only $390 billion in passive runoff in treasuries this year versus the $720 billion forecast we had talked about when we first introduced our QT forecast just a few months ago. Um, this is pretty important for the Treasury market, I think, for our listeners and for our readers. We've highlighted that the Fed's share of the Treasury market matters for both yield levels and curve slope. Um, so naturally, if we're looking for less runoff, the Fed's share of the Treasury market will remain higher than we had previously expected and should result in rates that remain somewhat lower and curves that remain somewhat flatter, all else equal versus our baselines. So I think that's a starting point. Um, but I also want to turn to the mortgage market and bring Nick in now. Um, Nick, you know, what do you think this means for the mortgage market? Um, the path for slowing and stopping QT for MBS was slightly different in 2019 than what we talked about for treasuries. 
Do you care to elaborate on what happened in 2019 and how we can apply this to the current environment and what to expect? Sure, Jay. Uh, so for some time now, the Fed has stated that it eventually wants to get back to an all treasury balance sheet. That was the case back in 2019 when it laid out how it would first stop QT and it remains true today. Um, now that principle was derailed a bit by mortgage purchases during QE4, but I would say that the mortgage market has generally coalesced around the belief that the Fed means it this time. So to that end, we don't expect the Fed will replace any MBS runoff with more MBS. Instead, we think that they'll be buying treasuries. Currently, they have a 35 billion MBS runoff cap, but only receive 15 to 20 billion of MBS paydowns per month. What they choose to do with that cap probably isn't that relevant in this rate regime. They won't be buying MBS in the foreseeable future. Now, functionally, that means that there's no change in the demand for MBS from the Fed due to the end of QT specifically. However, they will be buying, um, be buying more treasuries. So at the first order, that's a spread widener for mortgages. That being said, there's a second order effect, and I'll let Srini talk about this more later. But if halting QT and reserve runoff means that bank deposits grow more quickly, all else equal, that could be supportive of their demand for MBS. Agency MBS still optimize well for banks thanks to their favorable risk weight and LCR treatment. And historically, banks have been happy to buy them at around these spread levels. Now, deposits are the raw materials that lead to securities purchases. So more deposits would be a mild positive in that regard. Our market is already priced to pretty optimistic spreads on that front, however, so I don't think that we're going to see too much additional spread movement as a result of the Fed's recent communication. That's great, Nick. Thanks a lot. Um, so on margin, you know, sort of priced for this outcome already. Um, and I think I'm going to circle back to Srini and the point about deposits and securities demand in just a couple of minutes right now. But the first thing that I want to cover, because this is impactful for the treasury market as well, is what you just talked about, that once MBS QT ends, that the Fed will reinvest these paydowns back into treasuries. And now to remind everyone of what happened five years ago at the time, the Fed reinvested into sort of treasuries via secondary market purchases. Um, and these purchases were sort of done across the curve in a pro rata fashion just kind of the maturity composition of, of the treasury market overall. And if we get an earlier end to QT than we expected, ultimately, this is going to mean, given Nick, the, the prepays and the pay, pay downs that you talked about, secondary demand from the Fed to the tune of anywhere between 180 billion and 220 billion annually. And now this is pretty important because we flagged in the 2024 outlook that there's a structural demand imbalance here where the price insensitive buyers like the Fed and US banks and foreigners were not keeping pace with the growth of the treasury market. But this, in, in essence, would help to better balance the structural demand imbalance that we talked about. Um, so I think that's a really important point here as we get into later this year and once QT is actually done. And, and this is a really good starting point versus what happened in 2019. But I think there's an important point to note here. And it's that the Fed's treasury holdings are considerably longer in duration than the overall duration of the treasury market. So um, just for kind of context there, I think um, this is mainly coming from T-bills. And we know that T-bills represented close to a 22% share of the treasury market as of the end of November. Um, and that the SOMA, its share of T-bills within its portfolio is only about 5% as of last week. So you know there is a case to be made that perhaps instead of reinvesting across the curve, that the Fed could reinvest just at the short end, and thus its holdings over time will more closely resemble those of the treasury market overall. 
But to be fair, um, this was the, the same case five years ago. And the Fed's holdings have been uh, longer duration on average than that of the overall Treasury market, really, since the QE era began. So I think the path of least resistance points to the Fed employing the same playbook that it used five years ago. Um, but it, there is a remaining question about why the Fed needs to hold a portfolio of securities that's longer in duration than the Treasury market itself. And I think that's really important in the context of what's happened over the last year and a half. Um, and that treasuries, you know, reinvesting back into T-bills would help the Fed's portfolio look more like the overall treasury market over time. But it doesn't seem like that's a baseline on what to expect. Um, now, now, flipping away from this side of the equation, I want to bring in Teresa and Srini here. Uh, now, both of you have written really extensively about the Fed's liabilities. Um, so I'd like to talk about, against the backdrop of this smaller drawdown in treasury and mortgage holdings than we originally anticipated, what would an earlier end to QT mean for both reserves and RRP? Now, Srini, in, in the baseline that you presented, you thought reserves would barely fall under $3 trillion by later this year um, with a stronger depletion of the RRP balances. But obviously here, RRP balances have continued to plummet and are sitting still under $700 billion as of this afternoon, which is pretty close to the lowest levels that we've seen since the middle of 2021. If the Fed were to proceed along this 2019 timeline, um, how would we expect reserve and RRP balances to evolve? And then I think the second question here, you know, how would this impact swap spreads as well, or would it have an impact on swap spreads? Yeah. So maybe the place to begin is, uh, you know, uh, to recognize that there's always some uh, volatility and 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 also seasonals around year end and all of that. So you have to kind of look past all of those. Um, and when you do, uh, over the course of the year, you know, even before, even before all of the, the 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 prospect of the earlier taper, we were expecting, you know, basically the balance sheet to go down by about a trillion, of which RRPs were expected to go down, you know, call it six fifty billion to use round numbers, uh, with reserves sort of taking up the rest, like four hundred billion ish over the course of the year. The, you know, if we do get an earlier um, start and finish of the taper. So along the timelines that you uh, described, Jay, um, I think that would leave us with a balance sheet that's, uh, you know, call it 400 billion uh, higher than, than our previous expectations. And the split there is roughly 250 of that, uh, 250 billion of that uh, will manifest as higher RRP balances and, and 150 in, in higher reserve balances. Uh, and in, if, if taper is even further accelerated, if it begins in April and ends in July, for instance, just to consider that scenario, uh, well, there's incrementally another 100 billion or so in balance sheet size uh, and another 100 billion or so in, in RRP balances. So all said and done, I think the outlook is, you know, relative to previous expectations, higher uh, Fed balance sheet size, and most of that coming in the form of a, a higher terminal RRP balance. Uh, that matters for swap spreads. Uh, like you said, um, you know, uh, in fact, front-end swap spreads perhaps are the most uh, most impacted by RRP balances. Um, rule of thumb there is every trillion in RRP balances is worth about 16 basis points or so in two-year spreads. Uh, so the numbers we're talking about, you know, two to three hundred ish billion uh, of uh, higher RRP balances, you know, that should mean, you know, eventually three to five basis points or so of wider two-year two-year swap spreads. Um, and of course, the uh, uh, all else equal, uh, higher Fed balance sheet outlook is also a 
you know, call it a modest positive for deposit growth. Um, we have, you know, coming into the year, we have a relatively flat forecast for, for deposit growth. You know, I think we have it up, you know, just a couple of hundred billion, which is really, um, you know, essentially flat. Uh, and, but if, if we have an earlier taper and, and the Fed balance sheet were to end up, you know, about 500 larger than, than where we thought, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, that could mean another, you know, a couple of hundred, you know, 250 or so of uh, 250 billion of deposit growth. Um, so I think, I think it's fair to say that uh, balance sheet policy, if these, if these scenarios play out, balance sheet policy could be on the verge of turning um, into a slight positive for, you know, for, for demand for securities like, like Nick referenced. That's great, Srini. So in essence, uh, less balance sheet rundown, higher RRP, uh, higher reserves, uh, wider swap spreads, and potentially higher deposit growth, and somewhat better bank demand for securities overall, as Nick said as well. Thanks a lot for that. Now, now, Teresa, I've got another question for you. The other implication for an earlier QTN, should it come to fruition, would have uh, implications for Treasury finance as well. Um, and while an earlier end of the QT process doesn't change the Treasury's financing needs, this would result in commensurately fewer treasuries coming back to private non-Fed hands. Um, and I think if we talk about what we said before, a smaller rundown in the, the Fed's treasury holdings, that would mean um, you know, something like $330 billion in less net T-bill issuance than, than we have expected in our current forecast, which is looking for about $675 billion in net issuance over the year. Um, if there's less net T-bill issuance this year, what does it mean for the money market fund community? And what do you think about the prospects here? Sure. So all else equal with less T-bill issuance, money funds will have to direct their excess cash towards the RRP facility as a source of backstop supply. Um, you know, when we think about just the composition of the money fund complex, um, roughly about you know, call it close to $5 trillion sits in government money market funds. And, and I note that because these government money market funds are somewhat constrained in what they can buy. They can only buy T-bills, um, treasury coupons uh, that are inside of one year, uh, treasury repos, and um, money market agency securities. So, you know, to the extent that we see less T-bill issuance, that does mean that they will have to rely on the Fed's RRP facility you know, as a place um, of backstop supply when there is just no other, you know, collateral to go to. Um, and, and speaking of collateral, you know, this, I think, also impacts repo supply as well. Um, so to the extent there is less collateral in the marketplace that needs to be funded, you know, on the margin, there's also going to be less repo supply as well. So, you know, whether we're talking about less T-bill issuance or less repo, I think both of these di supply dynamics will push money towards the RRP, Assuming money fund AUM stay constant, and so, you know, I don't. I think this is consistent with you know Srini's forecast in terms of the evolution of the Fed's balance sheet, which is you know we're going to have a couple hundred billion dollar outstanding at the Fed's overnight RRP facility. Got it. So higher RRP balances for both reasons there. Now I've got a follow up question for you as well. Really twofold question. So, if we've got a if this comes to fruition. What do you think this means for both the effective Fed funds rate as well as SOFR? And then the follow on there is, do you think we should look for any changes to the administered rates sort of complex or to RRP counterparty limits at some point this year? 
On the margin, I think, you know, the slower pace of QT should certainly moderate the upward pressure on SOFR relative to the Fed funds rate. Um, again, this is because, you know, slower pace of QT means less collateral in the marketplace and more liquidity in the financial system. Um, so both of these dynamics should BIOS repo rates lower. Um, interestingly, the effective FEFINS rate has been pretty stable um, throughout, you know, call it the past couple of years, uh, regardless of kind of what happened to, to SOFR whether it's gone down or whether it's gone up. So, you know, I don't think this means that much in terms of movement in the effective FEFINS rate. Again, I think most of this movement is, is, is more targeted towards SOFR. With respect to changes to the administrator rates and the RRP counterparty limits, my sense is that, you know, there is really no urgency on the Fed to do, to make any changes to those, um, to, to those rates and limits right now. You know, if I look at the money markets, they're functioning pretty smoothly as is, despite, you know, the bouts of volatility that we've seen here and there with SOFR. Um, like I said earlier, the Fed funds rate has been stable, trading in the middle of the corridor. Um, the same is true mostly with SOFR, despite some of the spikes we saw over the past two month ends. Historically, the Fed has made technical adjustments when the benchmark rate was within five basis points of the upper bound of the Fed funds corridor. Uh, clearly, you know, with respect to Fed funds or SOFR, we are not in that situation right now. So while it might make sense to eventually widen the spread between IORB and the RRP rate, I don't think this is something at the top of the Fed's mind at the moment. As for RRP counterparty limits, the same theory applies. Um, usage here has been declining, as noted earlier, um, demonstrating you know, really a natural decrease in markets reliance on this facility. So, you know, there's really no need to change anything on that right now. If anything, you know, I think given the growth of money funds over the past few years, it might actually make sense to maintain a higher counterparty limit than the $30 billion we started off with in 2021. Um, so long story short, I don't think there's any urgency to change um, the administer rates or the counterparty limits at this point in time. Got it. Thanks a lot, Teresa. Um, and thanks so much to everyone today, to Teresa, to you, to, to Srini, and to Nick for this discussion. So again, this is very early stages because we are probably not going to learn much more about this plan to slow and stop QT until we get the minutes of the January meeting. And we're probably a good five or six weeks away from that. Um, but nevertheless, we thought it was important to kind of talk about this because there's a there's a risk that there's a meaningful difference between the baseline that we presented and what we heard from the Fed earlier this week. And this is going to be an evolving conversation throughout the year. So again, thanks to everyone who joined for today. Now, stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2024, JP Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on January 5th, 2024.